A naturalistic origin for the Chinese dragon. It is not surprising, therefore, that extraordinary dragon artifacts have appeared in quantity in burials of the early Tao period, and also at Taosi. From Xingzhai, there are early dragon images inscribed on pottery shards, dating from between the late Longshan and early early Tao periods. Beautifully fashioned bronze plaques inlaid with turquoise and representing the faces of dragons, as well as dragon scepters or bat batons, have been excavated at early toe. Prefiguring the early toe dragonic images are those from Taosu, such as the primitive image on the famous dragon basin. But the artistry and the bronze workmanship at early toe shows great improvement over Taosu. Judging from the tombs in which the Arlito dragon implements and bronze bells were found, they were worn by high-status individuals with special skills, possibly the legendary dragon tamers or officials we encountered in Saimo's recounting of the history of the period. According to the archaeologists, their dragon accoutrements were not the possessions of the king. The question now arises, how early is it possible to document this focus on the astronomical function of the dragon constellation? Although dragon motifs of many kinds are nearly ubiquitous in early Chinese Bronze Age art, their abstract, multifaceted depictions have long discouraged speculation about a naturalistic origin. Some art historians have considered the often dragonetic mask-like Taoti images fanciful, a pure product of human imagination. Others, on scant evidence, impute shamanistic significance to them. A few scholars have alluded to a more down-to-earth connection of the dragon with the endangered Yangtze alligator, Alligator Sinesis. In fact, the climate of North China, where the dragon motif was widespread by the early 2nd millennium BCE, was much warmer and wetter than at present. Abundant textual and archaeological evidence shows that the alligator, together with the Asian elephant, rhinoceros, and other subtropical flora and fauna, were common in North China, especially in marshlands and swampy areas in the east. Archaeological finds of polished alligator scales in Neolithic burials at Dawenko and alligator skin drums containing alligator bones at Taosu, some 500 kilometers from their customary range, attest to the presence of that creature in the eastern Yellow River drainage and to the alligator's importance in elite ritual and trade. Throughout Chinese history, drumming was an essential feature of rites intended to induce the dragon spirit to deliver rain and may have simulated the alligator's thunderous bellowing during the spring mating season. The Taotia and the Dragon Festival It is surprising that all the speculation about the meaning and lack thereof of the Taotia virtually ignores the ethnographic evidence. 
Sacrifices to the ancestors and to the spirits of the landscape are the most enduring aspect of Chinese culture and are archaeologically documented deep into the Neolithic. The practice is ubiquitous of burying food, weapons, art objects, items of daily use, etc. with the deceased. Sheep, cattle, and deer are all represented as Taotie on Shang and early Zhou bronzes, e.g. on the square cauldrons found in Fu Hao's tomb, along with innumerable stylized and abstract versions of the dragon motif, not simply as a mask-like face, but sometimes with the entire body splayed in a head-on view with both flanks visible. Over time, artistic license led to these decorative motifs becoming increasingly imaginative, e.g. small dragons as horns on depictions of livestock, and then abstracted, dissolved, and made more fanciful, ultimately becoming almost unrecognizable. We know that specially bred livestock in various combinations were the most common sacrificial offerings in the Shang royal cult of the ancestors, as recorded in innumerable descriptions. The Book of Documents records that a steer, a sheep, and a pig were sacrificed at the founding of the new Zhou capital of Luo in the mid-10th century BCE. Offerings were split open, dismembered, and arrayed in extravagant displays of disposable wealth prior to cooking and consumption, in the context of worship and ritual feasting. Research has demonstrated the great political, economic, and religious importance of pigs earlier in the Neolithic. Ethnohistorical documents indicate that pigs provided the greatest source of animal protein for the ancient Chinese, that they were used in rituals, and that differential access to them was an ideological display of wealth and asymmetry. Li Liu has drawn similar conclusions. The interment of domesticated pig skulls, mandibles, or even whole pigs in burials can be traced back to the early Neolithic period in 6th millennium BCE. This practice became widespread during the Neolithic and continued during the Bronze Age in China. Most examples of pig skulls and mandibles are normally, but not exclusively, associated with rich burials in the late Neolithic period. They are plentiful in burials at Taosu. The distinctive so-called pig dragon jades from the Hongshan culture, 5th, 3rd millennium BCE, are well known. I suggest that the Tautium motif may actually have originated in something as prosaic as the deboned and dried faces of sacrificial animals prepared for ritual consumption. These faces exhibit the same cleft-chinned death grin so characteristic of the Tautia, which also conspicuously lack chin and lower jaw. An origin for the Tautia in this custom would hardly be surprising, given the importance of domestic animals in sacrifices. What could be more natural than for the faces of the buried skulls to have been displayed as part of the sacrificial rituals dedicated to the ancestors? 
or for such faces to appear later, perhaps as an archaism on the high-status bronzes used to make the actual offerings to the spirits. It is questionable whether the mask-like Tautia ever represented anything so fanciful as the spirits of the ancestors or the mystical transformation of shamans into animal familiars or passage to the realm of the dead through the gaping maw of the monster, as has been speculated. Along with stylistic evolution of the bronze decor, the abstraction, dissolution, and fanciful recombination of features of the archaic motif gradually led it becoming less and less recognizable, ultimately to be abandoned by late Job. To this day, however, one can see the dried faces of pigs looking exactly like Tautia displayed for sale in rural market stalls, as I have in Hunan, Shanxi, Shandong, Sichuan, and even Taipei, Taiwan, in 1974. These faces are carefully preserved to be consumed as a delicacy on special occasions, and a few moments online search will turn up recipes in restaurants featuring the delicacy. The major feast day when pig face is consumed is the Dragon's Head Festival previously mentioned, when all manner of folk customs were performed to awaken the dragon and implore it to send the spring rains. Called La Pig Face, La Julian, or Stewed Pig Head, Pa, pa Ju To, in ancient times, the pig's head was a sacrificial offering to the ancestors or to heaven. In the north, on the second day of the second month, Ar Ar, the day the dragon raises its head, Long Tai To, peasant households would cook pig heads. Having already celebrated New Year's Day on the 15th of the first month, the second day of the second month is the last day of the spring festival. Peasant families, having worked hard the entire year, would slaughter a pig on the 23rd of the preceding La, or last month of the year. Once New Year was passed, the pork from the slaughtered pig would be finished, and all that was left would be the head. In the north, the second of the second month is called Spring Dragon Festival. In the Zhou dynasty, the second day of the second month was a day of sacrifice, which by the Tang dynasty had evolved into feast day among the common folk. Every food item consumed on that day would be dubbed dragon this or dragon that. So, for example, noodles become dragon whisper, whiskers, lung, shu, spring pancakes, chun bing become dragon scales, lung ling, Fried crullers become dragon bones, long gu, and stewed pig face no doubt represented the dragon's head, long toe. This strikes me as an altogether more satisfyingly Chinese, if less mystical, origin for the Tautia motif. One of the most striking artifacts discovered at the late Neolithic city site of Arli Toe was the dragon-shaped scepter, or mace, pictured here, made of bronze with elaborate turquoise inlay. 
number of turquoise inlaid bronze plaques have also been found, dating from late Longshan through early to period 3, early 2nd millennium BCE. They have all been unearthed in elite burials, though not royal tombs, together with small bronze bells. Archaeologists have characterized the plaques as belonging to elite individuals who possessed highly regarded specialized skills and point to similarities with the depictions of dragons discovered at Taosu. These may well be the dragon officials of legend, referred to by Tsai Mo. According to Zhuo Zhuan, um, Duke Zhao, 17th year, Lord Taihao kept track of time using the dragon, so he created the office of Master of Dragons with dragon names. Taihao is, of course, Fuxi, mythical culture hero, and in some versions, progenitor with Nuwa of the Sinitic people. So this Zhuo Zhuan passage is pushing the office of Dragon Watcher well back into the pre-dynastic period, contemporaneous with Taosi. Thus, there is abundant evidence to suggest that the dragon ranked high in the pantheon of spirit entities revered by those early Bronze Age Chinese. The behavioral characteristics of the Chinese alligator suggest the reason why. Today, the Yangtze alligator is so-called because it lives almost exclusively in or near the Yangtze River. They are denizens of swampland, which explains their gradual retreat southward as a result of the growing aridity of the north over the past three millennia. A noteworthy characteristic of their behavior is that during the winter they hibernate in underground burrows to conserve energy, emerging in spring to hunt during the warmth of the day. During the summer, in contrast, they switch to a nocturnal schedule. Like the peasantry, they store up caloric reserves from March through October to see them safely through winter hibernation. It can hardly be a coincidence that the seasonal behavior of this intimidating and sometimes aggressive creature is a perfect analog of the dragon's constellation's behavior and the seasonal activity of the late Neolithic and Three Dynasties farmers. An Eccentric Dragon The discovery of an extraordinary bronze vessel offers convincing evidence of the linkage between the alligator and the celestial lone dragon. In western Shanxi province, some archaeological finds are representative of a northern complex, so-called because of the mix of stylistic influences that clearly distinguish the artifacts of this interaction sphere from the central plains style. Many share hybrid characteristics that reflect a mix of heartland and steppe cultures, indicative of the complex archaeological picture of this area, where northerners adopted into their own culture the manufacture and use of bronze vessels, some of which have repeatedly been found together with vessels so eccentric that they must be local castings.
Taiyi and Northern Coleman. Recent studies of the cultic practices, ceremonial, and conceptual background of the numinous power of Supreme One during the Warring States through Han periods draw on abundant textual and archaeological materials and underscore the identification of Supreme One with a celestial pole. To cite a few examples, Shiji, Treatise on the Celestial Offices, the brightest star of the pole star asterism in the central palace is the constant abode of the Supreme One. Huai Ainanzi, Heaven's Patterns, the palace of grand tenuity is the court of the Supreme One. The palace of purple tenuity is the abode of the Supreme One. Great Flood. The center is the place of the Supreme One. The 100 spirits look up to it and are controlled by it. Liji, Evolution of the Rites. Now the rites necessarily have their origin in the Supreme One, which divides to become heaven and earth, evolves to become yin and yang, and changes to become the four seasons. From Zhuangzi, all under heaven, Tianxia. Of the ancient traditions of the way, there is this, Guan Ying and Lao Dan heard about it and found pleasure in it. They established it on the constancy of nothing and based it on the Supreme One. They took weakness and submissiveness as its external manifestation and emptiness and non-destructiveness to all things as its inner reality. These sources and opinions could be multiplied manyfold. From them we may conclude, the Supreme One in warring states and Han thinking is the supreme spiritual power residing at the center of the palace of purple tenuity, at the pole and identifiable with the Tao. In metaphysical contexts, it denotes the power of the ancient deity Shangdi, the supernal lord. All other numinous influences are subordinate to the Supreme One. It is the ultimate source of all phenomena, invisibly animating and regulating the universe. An important attribute of the Supreme One is its protean nature. There is awareness that its nominal associ association with the bright star, Kochab, UNI, Tian Di Xing, is an expedient similar to the rationale for placing the heavenly pivot of the Han period Mantic astrolabe shu in the handle of the dipper. As an inspirational focus based on the testimony of Shiji, Zhuangzi, and others, Supreme One as North Pole Asterism has a history that reaches into the distant past, where its attributes as celestial high god merge with those of the supernal lord.
The virtue of nothing. The mysterious efficacy of charismatic virtue, to which Confucius referred in the passage above, in the alternative Taoist vision of Zhuangzi, becomes the constancy of inaction, or Wu Wei, the ultimate achievement of one who is in harmony with the invisible force of Tao, Supreme One, animating the universe. The aphoristic maxims of the Laozi repeatedly invoke the themes of non-action, artlessness, and embracing the one, through which non-intentional purposefulness achieves its objective. More to the point, however, may be thus musing on the paradoxical virtue of nothing. Thirty spokes join at a single hub, but it is precisely where there is nothing that the utility of the wield wheel resides. Looking to the supernal lord, clay is fired to make a pot, but it is precisely where there is nothing that the utility of the clay pot resides. Cut out door and windows to finish a room, but it is precisely where there is nothing that the utility of the room resides. Therefore, having a thing is beneficial but having nothing is useful. Then there is this from the springs and autumns of Master Lu. Great music chapter. From the Supreme One emanate the two exemplars. The two exemplars give forth yin and yang. Yin and yang change and transform. One arising, one descending, they combine to form shapes. Confused and obscure in their separateness, they recombine. Once combined, they separate again. This is heaven's constant rule. Heaven and earth turn about like the wheel of a cart, ending, then beginning anew. Reaching their extremes, they turn back again, and nothing is ever out of place. The sun, moon, stars, and asterisms some speed along, some move slowly. The sun and the moon differ and thereby complete their movements. The four seasons arise in succession, now warm, now cold, now short, now long, now mild, now harsh. At the source from which all things emanate, they are initiated by the Supreme One and transformed by yin and yang. We have twice seen the metaphor of a wheel appear with reference to rotational movement of the heavens in the quotation from the spring and autumn of Master Lu, and with reference to the utility of the empty space at the hub. In contrast to the Analects of Confucius, which was quite explicit about the celestial source of its evocative metaphor for the mysterious efficacy of charismatic virtue, the Laozi is indirect, elusive, yet down-to-earth in its choice of images. Nevertheless, it does not require a great imaginative leap to perceive the likelihood of a common inspirational source for their respective visions of ultimate attainment and the mysterious operations of the empty pivot of the heavens. Indeed, for his part, 
In the postface to his monumental history, Sima Qian, 100 BCE, is quite explicit. The 28 lodges surround the northern asterism, 30 spokes turning ceaselessly around their hub, like supportive and indispensable officials attending it, loyally and faithfully carrying out the way in service to their master above. It can hardly be coincidental that during the two millennia, while this mystical vision was taking shape, there was no star located precisely at the pole, such as we have today, no obvious physical presence at the pivot of the heavens, so that the marvel of an efficacious nothing at the center of the rotating dome of the sky was nightly on display, inviting wonder. Synchronicity in the Book of Changes Let me offer an illustration of the intersection of timeless pattern and dynamism in the Book of Changes, which shows how this distillation of so much early Chinese thinking about change and timeliness can enlighten us about views of temporality and causation, as well as about certain other prefigurative metaphors in ancient Chinese thought. In the changes, where the quality of the moment is a function of shu, inherent spatio-temporal advantage, the timeliness of every action or inaction is especially prominent and repeatedly stressed. This is the kairos of the Greeks, the right time. Plato contrasted kairos, occasion, with chance, what happens by chance is said to be opaque to human understanding. Chance is a coming together of events that, for all we can understand or determine, could have happened at any time. Occasion, on the contrary, points to a favorable time, which makes possible what, under di different circumstances, could not come to pass. Small wonder, then, that a preoccupation with not encountering receptive times or meeting with unfavorable circumstances that, frustrates, that frustrate one's ambitions should have loomed large in the minds of Chinese thinkers in the late Warring States and Han periods, especially given the troubling precedent of Confucius's own failure to achieve due recognition in his day. In his famous prose poem on the theme of gentlemen of integrity unappreciated in their time, Shi Bu Yu Fu, the most influential Confucian thinker of the Western Han dynasty, Dong Zhongshu, 179 to 104 BCE, was deeply influenced by the Book of Changes. Alas, the whole world goes along with perversity. I grieve that we cannot join together in turning back. What else can I do but return to the constant task and not let myself be cast about by the times? Though all profit be gained by violating the true self, still it is better to straighten the mind and cleave to the good. If only the buffeting of urgency causes me to be moved, 
Surely I cannot be said to have an intemperate nature. Clearly manifesting, unifying men means possession in great measure. And to brightly show forth the radiance of modesty means to further the cause. Tongren, fellowship with men, and Dayo, possession in great measure, are hexagrams 13 and 14 in the received text of the changes. Their pivotal importance in the Han Confucian interpretation of the changes is second only to that of the first two, Qian and Kun, in that they are taken to symbolize the means, humanism and self-cultivation, and the end, political unity and social harmony, of the Confucian socio-political agenda. In terms, their structure, in terms of their structure, there was thought to obtain an intrinsically dynamic relationship among the central ideas and images embodied in these two hexagrams, which is represented graphically in their configuration. There are two of the very few hexagrams that have a complementary pair of yin and yang lines occupying the two central, mutually interacting, and supremely important positions in the hexagram, the second and fifth lines. Traditionally, the second line is associated with the concept subordinate, and the fifth line with that of superior or ruler. In both cases, then, we have a representation of the ideal situation in which a yielding or receptive line and an assertive or creative line finds its counterpart in precisely the right location. Both hexagrams, therefore, symbolize the ideal relationship of a wise ruler paired with a sagely advisor, but in two different aspects. The accession of a worthy ruler happens to occur in an age that is going to be well-governed. His virtues are self-evident above, and the people are automatically good below. The world is at peace, and the people are secure. The auspicious signs all display themselves, and the age speaks of those as induced by the worthy ruler. The immoral ruler happens to be born at a time when chaos is to exist. The empire is thrown into troubles, and the people's ways become disorderly, with unending disasters and calamities. Leading to the fall of the state, the death of the ruler, and the displacement of his successors. The world all refers to that as having been induced by his evils. Such observations are clearer about the external appearance of good and evil, but fail to perceive the internal reality of good and bad fortune. Hence, in this view, all the actions of an individual or an undertaking, which is about to flourish, will spontaneously accord with the spatio-temporal configuration. In the case of an emerging sage king, Followers will come to him unsummoned, and auspicious objects will come to him unsignaled. Invisibly moved, they will all arrive in concert 
as if they had been sent. This is precisely what Granet was referring to when he spoke of patterns simultaneously appearing in a vast field of force, and what C.G. Jung meant in stressing that the Chinese world outlook involved a causality principle quite unlike that of Galilean Newtonian science, which he denoted synchronistic. According to Lucien Lévy-Breux, the primitive mind, unlike our own notions of causality, is indifferent to secondary causes or intervening mechanisms. The connection between cause and effect is immediate and intermediate links are not recognized. He said, primitives do not probe causal connections in the scientific mode, not because of deficiencies in their individual mental structures, but because such examination is precluded or excluded by their social doctrines or by the parameters of their systems of knowledge. Classical Chinese is tenseless, so that temporal relations are somewhat fluid and typically indicated contextually by the use of aspect markers and explicit time words. Taken together, these factors seem to militate in favor of a relative devaluation of precision when it comes to temporal indications and prioritizing relational or situational import. This state of affairs, as in the account of the aged commoner at the feast, and in Clifford Geertz's remark about what kind of time it is in Bali, brings to mind another suggestive parallel from the anthropological literature, an account of the cognitive devaluation of linear time among the Trobriand islanders, first documented by Jacob Malinowski. Consider the following description of Trobriand concepts of time and temporality. There is no boundary between past, Trobriand experience, and the present. He can indicate that an action is completed, but this does not mean that the action is past. It may be completed and present or timeless. Where we would say many years ago and use the past tense, the Trobriander would say, in my father's childhood, and use non-temporal verbs. He places the event situationally, not temporally. Past, present, and future are presented linguistically as the same, are present in his existence, and sameness with what we call the past and with myth represents value to the Trobriander. Perhaps in this description of the cultural devaluation of temporally structured narrative in favor of patterned relations and activity, we can also gain an inkling of what inspired the Chinese metaphorical recourse to the art of weaving. The early Chinese synthesis of the complementary aspects of time and space into an all-embracing fabric of a-causal patterned orderedness far from being a metaphysical innovation of the immediate pre-imperial period, like many other images in the Book of Changes, owes much to concepts harking back to China's remote past.
As David Schauberg says of the historiographical perspective of the dual commentary and the discourses of the states, historical progression is not so much a line as a fabric. The first model of space-time. By far the most important figure of speech in this regard is Ganji, bring regular order to govern. The compound is made up of gang, cord forming the selvage of a net or textile, and by extension control, maintain an order, direct, and ji. The meaning of ji comes from the process of silk production, a crucial step in unwinding the silk from the boiled cocoon is first to find the head end of the thread. Once that is done, the thread can be unwound from the softened cocoon and reeled up smoothly and easily. Similarly, the individual warp threads need to be individually tied onto the loom before beginning to weave. From this, ji, thread end, acquired the extended meanings of to straighten out, put in order, its most common usage in pre-Chin literature. Later, it also came to mean keep time, temporal record, period of years, to record, which all derive from the basic notion of linearity, serial order, sequential stringing. In philosophical literature, one encounters the combination ganji as a metaphor for positions and connections with other things in the web of relationships in both nature and human society. Implicit structural organization. We saw an example of this verbal usage to keep track of, reckon, count, time, in the anecdote about the old man of Jiang at the banquet. The headings of the twelve divisions of Master Lu's springs and autumns, annals, setting forth the seasonal and symbolic correlations of the months of the year, are called Ji, combining order-giving, temporally sequential, and celestial senses. In the Book of Odes, we find govern the four quarters, gan ji si fang, where gan is glossed as to deploy, and ji is to bring order to. In Mozi, conforming upward, shan tong, it says, anciently the sage kings instituted the five punishments for use in governing the people. Just as a skein of silk has a lead in two line, or has a lead end, qi, and a net has a head rope, gang, the five punishments are what bring into line commoners in the sub-celestial realm, who fail to conform with their superiors. Again, Mozi, heaven's will. Moreover, I have reason to know that heaven abundantly cares for the people by alternately deploying sun, moon, stars, and asterisms to illuminate and guide them, and by making the four seasons 
spring, autumn, winter, summer, to structure, 季刚, their activity.